What does the Bible say about guardian angels? Do we have one? It's the Cross Culture Q&A question. The answer right after this week's Crosswalk. Don't allow the enemy to steal from you what God has already purchased for you. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. One of the reasons perhaps sometimes that we struggle with the belief in the idea of spiritual warfare is because we live our lives so much in the here and now. Spiritual warfare, the age-old battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Ever since Satan rebelled against God, he's been trying to stop God's plans for creation and man in particular. Most of us live our lives oblivious to the battle that rages around us because we're so focused on what we can see. But the Bible says the battle is real and the consequences of not realizing that and not being prepared can be devastating. He could care less if you and I know intellectually that we have been covered and overcome by the blood of the Lamb as long as we don't know it practically in our lives. But if we know it practically and we live in the reality that I have been set free, no matter what His attacks might be, God will protect and His plans will be accomplished even for myself and for the nation of Israel. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Well, today, Pastor Clay leads us through the last part of Revelation chapter 12, verses 11 through 17. If you were with us last week as we looked at verses 7 through 10 of chapter 12, you know that we saw Satan defeated in a final war in heaven, and he was cast down to the earth. He's apparently had access to the earth ever since the Garden of Eden, but now he is limited to the earth. No longer able to access heaven, Satan knows his time is running out. And as we'll see today, in his anger, he lashes out at the nation of Israel in the last half of the tribulation period. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how guilty you feel. It doesn't matter how unworthy you think you are. All sin, every sin, is overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Pastor Clay is also going to remind us just how we overcome the enemy when he comes against us and what it means to overcome him because of the blood of the Lamb. We have an exciting and practical message for all of us today, and we're glad you've joined us for this week's Crosswalk. We have, for the last few weeks, been in chapter 12. I'll talk more about this in a moment, but this third week we've been in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, uh, if you've been with us or if you've gone back and, and caught up on, uh, on the internet, listened to the messages, uh, you've, you've seen that this really is dealing a lot with, with spiritual warfare. Now, most of it has to do with future spiritual warfare, with, with some battles that are going to take place somewhere in the future, but it has certainly been connected to the whole idea of spiritual warfare in general. And I was thinking this last week, and I meant to say something about it and I forgot. I was thinking last week that, that perhaps some of us uh, here have been listening to these messages and this whole idea of spiritual warfare and angels and demons and Satan and, and God. And, and perhaps uh, someone out there might be thinking, you know, really? I mean, it's, you know, all that. I think that one of the reasons perhaps sometimes that we struggle with, with the belief uh, in the idea of spiritual warfare is because we live our lives so one-dimensional. 
And by that, I mean we live so much in the here and now. We live so much in our circumstances and and what's happening to us. And and like the servant of Elisha, all we can see is what's happening to us at this particular moment. And usually our response is to say, oh, Lord, what are we going to do? And so my prayer uh, for all of us in these days has been what Elisha's prayer was for his servant. Lord, open their eyes that they may see the reality of the battle that I believe rages around us more than we quite honestly realize most of the time. We are in Revelation chapter 12 this morning. By the way, you're in for a treat, right? Uh, At the end of the service, our children are coming in this morning and they're going to be singing. Um, I think we're still on for that, as far as I know. Uh, Our children have been working on some song, a couple of songs that they're going to do, and so uh, we're going to uh, just be blessed by that. We're in Revelation chapter 12. We're finishing up uh, this chapter. We're in verses 7 through, I mean, 11 through 17. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Why? Knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two... But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 through 17. If, you're, if you've been with us, you know that normally, for the most part, most weeks, I have what I call a BP square that I give to you, a big picture biblical principle. It's kind of the overarching idea of, of what this particular text that we're studying that day, if I could encompass it into one sentence kind of thing, that's what it would say. It's kind of my words that I come up with based on my study of the text, but it's the BP squared, big picture biblical principle. Sometimes I give you that BP squared at the beginning of a message. Usually I give it to you at the end of the message, but today we're going to actually build the BP squared as we go. And so you'll see the, uh, the, the blank lines for the BP squared down at the bottom of your outline if you'd like to fill those in. And you'll be going down there and filling in one as we go and then filling in some other things along the way. But let's get to the text. Let's, let's break this down and, and see what it looks like this morning. We've been walking just kind of verse by verse through uh, this tribulation period, these chapters that deal with that and all that's going on. Uh, and in, in we, as we get into verse 11... We come to the statement where it says, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. I want you to remember this, that even though this is the third week that we've been in Revelation chapter 12, uh, even though we've broken it into three parts, it's still one continuous story. And you need to understand that. You need to connect those all together in order to get a, a, a proper uh, understanding, a proper interpretation 
of course, of all texts, but certainly of Revelation chapter 12. For instance, in verse 11, it says, and they overcame them. Well, if we're just diving into it this morning, and if you're just here for the first time, your thought might be, well, who is they? The answer is found in verse 10 that we looked at last week and dealt with last week that says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. The accuser of our brethren. Then verse 11 goes on and says, and they overcame. So the they in verse 11 is referring to believers. In this context, most likely Jewish believers, since that's really what uh, chapters 11 and 12 and, are really beginning to deal with, most likely Jewish believers. But here's what I want you to understand. The truth, this principle that, that John states here is true of all believers of all ages, not only your age, but of all ages. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb that it is because of the blood of the Lamb that they overcame Him. You see, it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how guilty you feel. It doesn't matter how unworthy you think you are. All sin, every sin, is overcome by the blood of the Lamb. 1 John 1.7 says this, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from most of our sin. No, wait, that's not what it says, is it? And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from a whole lot of our sin. That's, That's not it either. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from the majority of our sin. No. Now, say it with me. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Say it again. All sin. Say it again. All sin. His blood cleanses us from all our sin. Now, I got to tell you, I know I got to hurry, and I'm going to try and rush through this quickly as I can, but we may not get very far past verse 11. I'm not sure, because I got something to say today about and containing or pertaining to verse 11 that all of us need to hear. Because in my now... 20 plus years of ministry experience, I have concluded, I am convinced that one of the key weapons that the enemy uses against you and me in our daily walks and and keeps us from living in the victory of the reality of Jesus Christ and what he's brought into us, I am convinced that one of the key weapons that he uses against us is the memory of our past. Listen to me of both the sins we have committed and the sins that have been committed against us. Here's, here's what I mean by this. To say that, that all sin is covered or cleansed and that we have victory because of the blood of the Lamb, here's what I've discovered. Most followers of Jesus agree with that statement intellectually. And most followers of Jesus accept that statement spiritually. But most followers of Jesus fail to apply that truth practically to their lives. Here's what I mean. Throughout the years in, in, in counseling situations that I've had, a large percentage of people that I have counseled have struggled with 
either sins that they have committed in the past, mistakes they have made in the past, or sins that have been perpetrated upon them in the past. I, I have worked with a lot of people that, that just seem unable to move forward into the, into the reality of victory in Christ because of whatever has happened or whatever they did in their past. And, and people say, well, but... Pastor, you, 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 don't, you don't understand. You've, you've never been where I've been. You've not done what I've done. You've not had happen to you what has happened to you. And let me tell you, in, in, in years of counseling, there's not much I haven't heard. There's not much I haven't heard. I had a sexual relationship outside of marriage. I cheated on an exam. I stole some money from my work. I, I, I should have been a better father. Or I was made fun of. Or my dad abandoned me. Or my mother didn't love me. Or I was abused. It's like, it's like chains wrapped around your life. It's like you're thrown into the deep of the ocean and you're sinking deeper and deeper and deeper in either the grief of your own sin, the guilt of your own sin, or the grief that comes as a result of someone else's sin that's committed upon you. So, Pastor, you don't understand. You've never been there. You haven't been in my shoes. You don't know what it's like. Well, here's what I want to say. Number one, I don't have to know what it's like. I don't have to walk in your shoes. Because the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God says that he understands your situation. If you want to argue with him about that, I'll, I'll leave that between you and him. But the second thing I would say is this. While I may not have ever walked in your particular shoes, I've walked in my shoes and I know what it's like to make sinful choices. I know what it's like to make, make decisions that, that bring guilt upon your life that you live with. I know what it's like to, to struggle and wonder whether you're a good parent or if there's something that you could have done differently. I know what it's like to, to, to have, have someone tell you that, that, that they'll always support you and then turn around and attack you. I, I, I Listen to me. I know all of those things intellectually. But here's what I choose to know practically. John eight thirty six. If the Son sets you free, you will be free Indeed, it is overcoming by, because of, the blood of the Lamb. That's what he says. Well, there's a lot to say about that, but let's just finish up uh, verse 11. It also says that, uh, that they overcame him because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. It just means this. They decided to follow Jesus, and they didn't look back. There was no looking back. It didn't matter what the consequences or the cost would be. They were going to follow Christ. And in the context of chapter 12, most of them, it cost them their very lives. There's a story. To be honest with you, I have no idea whether it's actually true or not. It, I've heard it for years. It may just be urban legend. It may very well be true. But before the fall of communism in the former Soviet Union, churches were heavily persecuted by the state. Oftentimes... Followers of Jesus were imprisoned. Many times they were killed. And there's a story that a church was meeting uh, one day when suddenly the, the back doors burst open and in walked a soldier with his AK-47 locked and loaded. And he said to the people gathered there, I'm going to kill every person in here that's a Christian. So if you're not a Christian, you'd best clear out of here right now. As the story goes, at least three-quarters of the room emptied out. 
And the soldier shut the door, locked the door, turned around and said, all right, pastor, I've gotten rid of the pretenders. Now we can go on with the service. I don't know whether the story is true or not, but would they say that about us? Would they say they did not love their life even unto death? In other words, there's, there's nothing more important in my life than, than, than glorifying God with my life and seeking to honor and serve Him for whatever His purposes are and for whatever it would cost me. Is that? Am I willing to, to go that far? And they did not love their life even unto death death. That's how they overcome the enemy. Listen, there's this idea that scripturally we're, we're dead in Christ. Spiritually speaking, we've been raised to walk in him. And so, so in the flesh we recognize, and, and you hear this over and over again in scripture about dying to the flesh and recognizing that you've died in Christ and all this kind of thing. There's a saying that, that goes like this, it's hard to kill a, a man that's already dead. In other words, if I recognize that, that, that I've been set free in Christ, it, it's this liberating thing. I know that the story about the Soviet Union is most likely not ever going to happen in our country, but would they say that about us? They did not love their life even unto death. I've, I've heard it uh, put this way as well. If being a Christian were illegal, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? Now, uh, there might be enough evidence to convict us of being a good person. There might be enough evidence convict us of of being a helpful person, but would there be enough evidence in my life to convict me of being a follower of Jesus? Beyond doubt, beyond question, that guy follows Jesus. Here's how I can prove it to you. Guilty as charged. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony and the fact that they did not love their life even unto death. So, the first part of the, the BP squared today looks like this. Christ followers will prevail. We will overcome because of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness and because of our testimony that, that produces a life that is changed or demonstrates a life that is changed. Christ followers will prevail. Now, real quickly, in verse 12, uh, for this reason rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short uh, time. It's, it's going to be, and again, this is, this is tying back into last week, so if you weren't here, you need to go back and listen to that message, but referring back to the fact that this war takes place in heaven, that uh, Satan is thrown out, and there's rejoicing in heaven as a result of that, knowing that he will never again be, be allowed to have access. It'll never again be allowed to, to accuse the, the brethren that he's gone from it. But as a result of it, he is enraged. Because remember, heaven is the place that he thought was his. Do you understand why this ticks him off so much? Heaven was the place that he thought was his. That's what it says in Isaiah. Satan said, I will exalt my place to, to the highest place. I'll set my place above God. And now suddenly he has no access any longer to this place. And so while he has always had influence over the earth, now here in the tribulation period, as, as really we're getting about halfway through, he is cast out of heaven, permanently cast down to the earth, and he is enraged, and it will be a difficult time on the earth. We've already seen in the earlier part of the tribulation period, we've already studied that in the chapters previous, what a difficult, difficult time the tribulation period has been. Apparently, it gets even worse in the second half of the tribulation period. And part of that is due to the anger of Satan. Verse 13, I, I went over these, uh, si- these 
individuals a couple of weeks ago, but if you weren't here, let me just give them to you real quickly again uh, when it says the dragon. I saw the dragon represents Satan, and that's pretty clear. It said that uh, earlier on. The woman uh, who gave birth, the woman represents Israel, and the male child represents Jesus Christ. Again, don't have time to give you the supporting uh, evidence for why uh, those symbolize what they do, but you can go back and listen to the message and pick that up. Uh, But uh, he is enraged, and he comes down the earth, and he makes war. So the second, to add to the BP squared, it looks like this now. Christ's followers will prevail. Satan will persecute. There will be a time of great persecution on this earth, um, especially upon the nation of Israel. And then in verse 14, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness of her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the servant. Verse 14, uh, you may remember if you've been with us, you may see a connection between verse 14 and in verse 6. Verse 6 told us that the woman, meaning Israel, was, was going was to run because of the persecution that will come upon Israel during the tribulation period. We'll get to that and what happens in the temple and, and all that kind of stuff. But... Uh, Israel runs, escapes for their lives out into the wilderness. They go into the wilderness. That's what verse 6 tells us. Verse 14 tells us that they're given two eagle's wings uh, to get there. And, and so they're going out into this place. Nobody knows exactly where this place is. There's a lot of desert out there. If you ever looked on the map, a lot of desert out there in the Middle East. <laughs> Nobody knows exactly where it is. But apparently there is a place that God has or will have prepared for the remnant of Israel to, to flee to, to escape when this persecution comes upon them. During that day, and this, this is Israel that has recognized, they will be recognizing Jesus as Messiah, they'll be coming to know him as their Lord, and they'll be turning to him in faith, and, and, and they will flee from that place and flee from him. This is not the first time, by the way, the whole idea of eagles and eagles' wings is not the first time this has been used in reference to protection of Israel. Exodus chapter 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And then another one in Deuteronomy, I think, 32. He was like an eagle building its nest that flutters over its young. It spreads its wings to catch them and carries it on its feathers. So obviously in Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 32, the eagle's wings are not literal. They are symbolic. And so therefore it makes sense that the eagle's wings in Revelation chapter 12 are symbolic as well. The two wings of the great eagle represent God's protection and God's provision. In the same way that God watched over and protected the nation of Israel in Pharaoh's day, led them out of captivity, led them into the wilderness and provided for them all the time that they were there. In the past, in the same way, God is going to do that again in the future during the tribulation period as he protects the remnant that come out of the nation of Israel, protecting them from, I believe, protecting them from Satan's army, uh, the Antichrist's army that Satan will send after the nation of Israel, which is, stay with me, which is what I believe verse 15 is referencing when it says, and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth. Uh, I, I am of the belief that the river, the water like a river out of his mouth uh, equals the army that Satan will send after Israel. The dragon is symbolic. The dragon symbolizes Satan. So it makes sense that the water coming out of his mouth would be symbolic. And I believe it symbolizes or represents the army that the Antichrist will send after God's people into the wilderness. That's what I believe. Now listen to me. 
But I can't say that for absolute fact. As much of the book of Revelation is, God doesn't give us every answer that we think we need to hear. He gives us what we need, but he doesn't give us every answer that we think we need to hear. The truth is, the water like a river out of his mouth could be actual water. It could be literal water flowing out of his mouth. Interestingly, one of the places that has been speculated about in the wilderness where God will send the nation of Israel to protect them, one of the places that has been speculated is this ancient city known as Petra. It was built in the 6th century B.C. It's, in now, it's now part of Jordan. What's even more interesting about this ancient city that's, that's literally carved out of walls of, of rock, sandstone, is that the main entrance into this city is through what's called the Wadi Musa, the Valley of Moses, that is so narrow in places that, that two people can't hardly pass by on it. And it leads directly into the city where it suddenly opens up after this narrow little crevasse of an opening winds its way through. It would be a perfect place for a flood to take place if you were trying to catch a group of people traveling through there. Now, it sounds like I'm building a case for, for a, a different position, but, but I, I, just, I just need to give that to you. That is possible. It is possible. Again, I believe that it's referring to an army, actually, that will come after them, but I can't say that absolutely definitively. can't say that for sure. What I can say for sure, what we can say for sure in verse 16 is that the earth helps the woman, the nation of Israel. The earth opens up, swallows up whatever this river of water is, be it literal water, be it an army, the, the earth opens up and swallows it up. Again, not the first time that God has operated this way. In, uh, I think it's in Numbers chapter 16, uh, the, the text says, the earth opened up and swallowed a man named Korah and, 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 and his followers who rebelled against Moses. So uh, this wouldn't be a new way for God to do it. Could be an earthquake or whatever the case may be, but the point is, God protects the nation of Israel, which is the third leg of our BP square. Christ followers will prevail, Satan will persecute, God will protect, because he says in his word that he will. And then finally, in verse uh, 17, so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. These are Jews who've come into relationship with Jesus, but apparently were not living in Israel when this took place. At this halfway point of tribulation period, verse 6 called it 1260 days, verse 14 called it time, times, and half a time. It's, it's this, referring to the same period of time, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. There will be Jews still living in different parts of the world. It may be referring to the 144,000 Jews. You remember those from chapter 7 who were converted to followers of Jesus and have been gone out, they've been sealed, and they've been going out spreading the message of Jesus? Maybe that's who Satan tries to go after. In any event, God protects. And so the last part of the BP squared is this. Israel will persevere. Not because of their own strength. They would have been wiped out long ago but because of the power of God and His hand of protection upon them, Israel will persevere. It is because of the blood of the Lamb that we overcome. You don't have to live your life in the past when God has already laid out a future for you. You don't have to live with 
the mistakes you have made, the sins you have committed, or the acts that have been perpetrated upon you. The blood of the Lamb covers you. Listen to me. He's the devil. He's the accuser. That's what he does. That's who he is. And listen to me. He could care less if you and I know intellectually that we have been covered and overcome by the blood of the Lamb. As long as we don't know it practically in our lives. But if we know it practically and we live in the reality that I have been set free, I will prevail no matter what his attacks might be. God will protect And his plans will be accomplished even for myself and for the nation of Israel. Don't allow the enemy to steal from you what God has already purchased for you. Not simply the knowledge that you are forgiven by his grace, but to live in the reality of his grace. To have victory in Christ. Because if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Life is going to be difficult for those who oppose Satan during the tribulation period. But as we've seen today, God promises to be with his remnant. Even today, life is difficult for those of us who follow Jesus and oppose the devil. But you and I have the power to overcome our enemy. It's not from any power we have ourselves, but is instead a power that comes from placing our faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross that brings us victory. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Q&A time at Cross Culture Church. Each week we take a question that someone has submitted and we uh, look at what God's Word says about it and try and deal with it. The question this week uh, looks like this. What does the Bible say about guardian angels? Do we have one? Do we have one? It's a good question. Well, um, interestingly, the, the, the word guardian angel is not actually, I mean obviously the word angel is, but Guardian angel is not a phrase that is used in Scripture. But we do know from Scripture that God certainly sends His angels at various times to protect uh, His people in certain situations. 
Let me give you a couple examples. In Acts chapter 12 uh, this morning, it says, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. The context of the text seems to imply that Herod had every intention of beheading Peter, putting Peter to death, since he had done that previously and had received the approval of people when he beheaded James. And so uh, the implication was that's what he's going to do to Peter. Uh, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Must have been sleeping pretty soundly. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed when they had walked the length of one street. Suddenly the angel left him. And of course, I love that story if you're familiar with it in Acts chapter 12 because uh, Peter goes uh, to the house of, uh, of the church where they've been having a prayer meeting for Peter, praying for Peter. Um, I just love to, I just love this story. They go to the house because they're having this prayer meeting because Peter's in jail. And when the servant run, runs into the bus at the prayer meeting, she says, there's somebody at the door that claims to be Peter. And everybody says, well, it can't be Peter. We're in here praying for him. He's in jail. <laughs> But anyway, uh, so uh, in that case, an angel came. Second uh, Kings chapter 6, another great story, says this. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. It's referring to the prophet Elisha, the prophet of the nation of Israel. The report came back, he is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong, strong force there. And they went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. This, we can understand this, this servant's reaction. It's the same reaction we would probably have. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? We probably all said that at some point in our lives, hadn't we? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. The servant, don't be afraid. Prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. And then the Lord opened his eyes, servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So another instance where God sent his protective angels over the situation. The primary text that is used to support the idea of guardian angels is found in Matthew chapter uh, 18. It looks like this. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones in context referring to children. For I tell you that their angels, notice what it says there, that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. So there seems to be this connection between these angels and these children. Although interestingly enough, the angels are not watching over the, the children are not watching over us. They're in the presence of the Father, looking at the Father and waiting for His command, which makes sense since the Father is omniscient, omnipresent, uh, omnipotent, all that sort of thing, that uh, they'd be looking to Him for guidance and direction. And then just another text, Hebrews chapter 13 uh, says this, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some people have entertained angels without even knowing it. So they are there, they're around and about. Are there guardian angels over each particular person who's a part of the family of God? I don't know that you can say definitively either way in the text, but we have a much better promise anyway, quite honestly. If we are children of God, if by faith in Jesus Christ, then God's word tells us that, uh, number one, God always will work all things together for our good, according to Romans chapter 8, that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us, according to Hebrews chapter 13. And in the end, the final statement is, is 
that the bottom line is that it doesn't really matter whether we have guardian angels or not. What matters is that we have a God who knows all, sees all, and is watching over and protecting us. That's what really matters. That's Q&A for today.